This is a talk by Matthew Siriadsky titled, What is Spiritual Realization? Recorded June 19, 2011 at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. So the topic for today's talk is, what is spiritual realization? The reason I chose this topic was because Joel has reminded me that these talks should be for just anyone off the street. Um, but at the same time, they're also for our body of spiritual practitioners. And so this topic is one that is both what gets people interested in mystical spirituality, but it's also one that you will never actually understand until you wake up. And so... For all of us, it's a very important topic. And as is, or at least uh, traditionally was, the, the, um, the program here, I brought some books that I used. Um, this is a really a very broad topic, obviously, so this is going to be a bit of an overview. But I've uh, selected a few books uh, that I've currently really appreciate, and uh, use some of these, uh, some of the quotes from these books in the talk, so. The uh, first book is The Platform Sutra by Huineng, the sixth patriarch, and this of Zen, Chinese Zen. And this is the, um, uh, basically, founder of Zen as we know it, he's the, the sixth patriarch when they were counting, and then from him, it's the flower of Chinese Zen Buddhism spread far and wide. So it's the only um, non, uh, uh, it's the only so-called sutra that is not in the words of the Buddha, it's in the words of the Sixth Patriarch. And this is a, a contemporary translation by Red Pine. Is that Bodhidharma? Bodhidharma is uh, the first patriarch of Zen. And then the second Buddhist text, um, now this was recommended to me by Andrea, uh, and uh, it took me about a year before I actually went and bought it. It is really, really good. For those of you who like Dzogchen, this is called Treasures from Juniper Ridge. And it's the profound treasure instructions of Padmasambhava to the Dakini Yeshe Tsogyal. And this is, I think, the third of a series, and this is the one with the text on what they call the view. And the view, in the Tibetan parlance, is the pithy, direct, straight to ultimate reality teachings. And I haven't actually finished it. This is what I'm currently reading. It's just really good. And then to round out East Asia, we have a text called, it's, the title is Original Tao, but it's actually, uh, the, the title of the Chinese text is Neya, which they translate as Inward Training. Inward Training. Uh, translated by Harold Roth, and uh, it's, he's a scholar, so it's a scholarly approach, and, you know, um, I, the commentary is interesting. I mean, they get into these different ways that scholars of mysticism have categorized 
spiritual experience and what is mysticism about. Blah, 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 blah. That part's not as interesting to me as the text itself. And the nice thing about this is that they include the Chinese, for those of you who like to translate Chinese. <laughs> And actually, let's get this one. I've used this one before. I brought this one up before, but I'm just going to plug it again. The spiritual, uh, or sorry, the Sufi path of love, the spiritual teachings of Rumi, really a great resource. Very lot, huge amount of stuff in here. I mean, it's a big one. It's almost all Rumi. The mostly commentary, a little bit of text, mostly text, a lot, little bit of commentary. So this book is great. Is, is that Rumi's poetry, or is there other writing by Rumi other than poetry in there? I, well, I think, I think most of the, rec- I, I'm not an expert on this, but I think most of what we have from Rumi is in verse form. Is that right, Abdullah? I'm not really sure. This, uh, the writing in Arabic, in this one, it says Al-Wadud. See the Arabic script there? What does it say? Al-Wadud, which means the beloved. The beloved. And then um, the, the, last, the last text is uh, this book I actually bought for Hiromi because she loves Meister Eckhart. Um, and this is the, Ma- the Man from Whom God Nothing Hid, a comprehensive and organized selection from his writings edited by Ursula Fleming. One nice feature about this text is um, that you can just turn to any page and there'll be something that similar to this one, the Sufi Path of Love, there'll be something there, and you can go to the index and you say, okay, well, what about the Trinity? I want to know what Meister Eckhart said about the Trinity, and then you can go and you can read some sections about the Trinity, and they're all very profound teachings. Okay, so to our talk. So the mystical traditions speak of the spiritual path as culminating in a realization of the divine or transcendent reality, of a knowing of the truth. They also maintain that this reality is both transcendent and imminent, and it goes beyond all relative things, yet simultaneously it gives rise to them, all of them. Furthermore, it's present right now, though we do not see it because of our own delusion, our own self-centeredness, and finally, they maintain that realizing this truth brings happiness and freedom. So, this realization has many pseudonyms. Enlightenment, awakening, moksha, or liberation, gnosis, satori. Of course, I'm speaking to the... I was hoping we'd get a few people who had... What is spiritual realization? You guys are experts, but it's okay. And we're recording this. Satori, attaining the constant way is a term that's used in the Vatican. One of my favorites from Dr. Wolf is recognition. It's just like, oh, oh yeah. Definitely my current least favorite, made popular in the, in the neo-advita circles, is popping. <clears throat> Although the analogy is sound, realization has a quality of the inside and the outside becoming one, just like when a, a soap bubble bursts. You know, there was a boundary there, and now there's no boundary. The bubble was there, but it's not there anymore. But the space is still there, and it's just the same space. But it seems to me to be a kind of a flippant term. It sort of downgrades the seriousness of the subject matter to me. 
So we're talking about life and death, misery and ecstasy, and not soap bubbles. Which is why I like probably my most favorite uh, is Anuttara Samyak Sambodhi, which means complete, unexcelled enlightenment. What? <laughs> Sanskrit. <clears throat> so anyway, I mean, really though, awakening, you know, freedom from suffering. Can you think of anything more valuable, more important, more, you know, what a wonderful idea. Is it real? Could that possibly be true? You know? And so to speak of it in terms that, that kind of downgraded, I think, um, does a disservice. So popping just doesn't cut it to my sensibilities. So this reality is also variably named. The Tao Te Ching says the way that can be conveyed, it's actually the Tao that can be Tao is not the constant Tao. But what they mean is the way that can be conveyed, actually traversed, as if somebody's traversing something, is not the constant way. And also in there he says, uh, the writer of the Tao Te Ching says, I don't know what it is, for lack of a better word, I call it the way. And then there's lots of terms in, throughout the world uh, religions. Heaven, Nirvana, Buddha nature, God, Brahman, Allah, Ein Sof, Rigpa, consciousness itself is what we tend to use here at the center. So, but the name is not really important. But the movement to understand it is. So the movement, what is this? What is spiritual realization? That movement is really important. The goal of spirituality is called realization because it's the property of awareness to know its objects. Our desire to understand is the essence of the spiritual quest, actually, as is our longing for love. It's actually, those are actually the same movement. It's the same longing. You, you could call it the longing to include. So when awareness turns upon itself in the quest to know itself, to return home to itself, that's the ultimate purpose of the power of knowing. The power of knowledge. And you could say that this is the way of integration, of fulfilling the longing for total inclusion. So I'll give you an enlightenment shortcut. You ready? Yeah. Okay, right now, rest as pure knowingness, knowing itself as knowing nothing, and knowing everything as itself. A little bit. Right now, rest as pure knowingness, knowing itself as knowing nothing, and knowing everything as itself. So the answer to the question, what is spiritual realization? Nobody knows. You get it? Okay, if you do, you can go home. You don't need to stay for the talk. But if you don't, you need spiritual realization. So the sixth patriarch said, I am passing on this teaching to later generations so that those who study the way will realize enlightenment directly and so that those who contemplate the mind will realize their original nature directly. If you are unable to realize this by yourselves, you need to find a truly good friend to point out the way to see your nature. 
And what do I mean by a truly good friend? Someone who understands the teaching of the supreme vehicle and who points directly to the true path is a truly good friend. A great intermediary, a guide who helps people see their nature. All good teachings can only come about due to truly good friends. I really like this translation of the Platform Sutra. I think it's really, um, it speaks to our contemporary mind in a good way. So. I heard the door. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> you only miss a little bit of nothing. <laughs> So this spiritual realization, it is asserted in these traditions, has three main benefits. We talk about three main benefits. So number one, it reveals the true nature of reality, which is fundamentally mysterious and beyond all thought and language. It's variously termed selflessness, non-duality, the one without a second, suchness, emptiness, Sat-chit-ananda, which is being, consciousness, bliss in the Hindu tradition. And from the West, the good, the true, and the beautiful. The second benefit frees one from the miseries of relative existence. And this is the big carrot, the big uh, draw here. But this is the true meaning of freedom. Freedom from suffering. So if there's no suffering, there's no reason to speak about spiritual realization. What is to be realized has already been realized. If there is suffering, then spiritual realization is required to remove the cause of suffering. Which has to do with a mistaken assumption about the nature of reality. That's part one. And in essence, if we're suffering, then we're looking for happiness in the wrong place. We're not seeing things clearly. And again, the third thing we could say about this uh, removal of suffering is that the cause of suffering is essentially resistance. Resistance to life, to death, to the world, to our own emotions. This is how we habitually pursue happiness, and this is the wrong direction to look. Meister Eckhart says, All sorrow comes from that whereof I am deprived by loss. If I mind the loss of outward things, it is a certain sign that I am fond of outward things and really love sorrow and discomfort. Is it to be wondered at that I am unhappy when I like discomfort and unhappiness, when my heart seeks and my mind gives to creature the good that is God's own? The fact is, it is quite impossible for God or anyone to bring true solace to a man who looks for it in creatures. But he who loves only God and creatures and creatures in God only, that man finds real and true and equal comfort everywhere. And the third thing that spiritual realization is touted as um, uh, one of its benefits, transcends death. 
uh, death being a big contributor to the experience of suffering, it's also a big clue to the end of the spiritual path. For in order to see reality as it is, we must see past the delusion of our own separate existence. We must die to ourselves. Rumi says, no one will find his way to the court of magnificence until he is annihilated. So, so clearly, spiritual realization is touted as a pretty big deal. <clears throat> so let's talk a little bit more about what it is. This realization, the traditions agree, is based upon insight, as we said, into selflessness. Insight means a direct, non-conceptual knowledge. One could say it's experiential, but insight actually transcends experience as we normally conceive of it. Because experience, as we conceive of it, requires an experiencer, experience, and experienced. Subject, uh, the situation, and the object. And what we're saying is that those three are not separate. And so in order to see that they're not separate, we need to examine, at least if we're going to be trying to figure this out, trying to follow this path, the sensible thing, what I recommend, is to examine these different fields. So first, selflessness of objects. All forms, meaning all objects, all appearances in the visual field, all sounds, all thoughts, are impermanent. They rise and pass moment to moment. They're like dream objects in that sense. Dream objects are perfectly real and useful in the dream, but vanish upon waking. Similarly, when we're in deep sleep, the world disappears from our awareness. Physical objects and awareness in and of themselves intrinsically possess uh, neither benefit nor harm. It's the subtle internal objects of thoughts and emotions about them that perpetuate fear or desire. So, you can see an object, then you value the object. Ah, that object is beautiful. And then there's emotion. Ah, want to possess, love, hold on to that object. And then there's desire. Similarly, if it's an object that's scary, speaking in front of people, I don't like doing that, it's scary. Then that thought comes up, it's reified, experience of fear. Now, we'll get to this, but it's it's possible to experience both of these nakedly. And then they, they cease being fear and desire. They start to show what's actually underlying So the second piece of the selflessness is the selflessness of the individual. When we seek spiritual realization, primarily, foremost, and most importantly, we come up against ourselves. And by ourselves, I mean all of our conditioning. Our desires, our fears, and our habits. So this is the bad news and the good news. It's bad because it's a real obstacle. We can't just will ourselves enlightened. 
We have to face everything that causes our misery. We have to face ourselves. But it's the good news, because if self was real, then it would, it would be made of something real and permanent, not just conditioning. Conditioning is conditioned, therefore it's transient. It comes and it goes. And since that's, that's the truth about what constitutes ourselves, it's possible to realize non-self by recognizing what is prior to conditioning. In other words, our selves are impermanent, small-ass selves. Our true nature is not. This is a big clue. This is the big clue to realization. Meister Eckhart again says, there are three hindrances to union of the soul with God. First, her being too much divided, not simple, not pure enough. The soul is not simple in her relations with creatures. The second one is attachment to temporal things, things that come and go. And thirdly, being fond of the body will prevent union with God. So we have to pass beyond the I am the body idea, is what he's saying. So as I mentioned, the identity of self is based upon conditioning only. This is what prevents us from being simple, as Meister Eckhart puts it. The conditioning arises due to misapprehension about experience. Experience is comprised of three main fields, so we should look at these. Thoughts, emotions, and perceptions. So we are misapprehending these fields somehow. So thought. Thought includes memory. Yesterday we had a drum circle here after the potluck and the kids were having a good time. So my son, who's coughing, he's got a cold. Um, where is that drum circle? I mean, it was in this room right here. That's the thought. Plans. Wednesday we're going to Lone Pine. It's going to be fun. Where's Lone Pine? It's a thought. Creative ideation in general is constantly arising in our awareness. The property of the mind is to, is, is to create. It's wonderful. It's always doing this. And these thoughts, these, by their very nature, create distinctions. They create the, all the myriad creatures, all of the world comes through this process. But when taken to be real, when these distinctions are taken to be real, permanent, actually existing, then we create duality. We create samsara. So it's not that we want to eliminate thought. We want to cease being attached to it. We don't want to be tricked by it. In the words of Huining, we want to cultivate no thought. As he puts it, the teaching of no thought means to see all dharmas, in this case, functions of objects, phenomenon, without being attached to any dharma, to reach everywhere without being attached anywhere, to keep your nature pure, so that when the six thieves pass through the six gates, 
They neither, neither avoid nor are corrupted by the six realms of sensation, but come and go freely. This is the samadhi of prajna, wisdom. Freedom and liberation constitute the practice of no thought. But if you don't think any thoughts at all, the moment you make your thoughts stop, you're imprisoned by dharmas. We call this a one-sided view. The second aspect of our experience that we need to see our misapprehension, we need to see our, our creation of self, is the field of emotion. Emotions are, essentially, bodily sensations that have become mixed with thoughts of difference to create the experience of pain and pleasure. And all of the varieties of that. So attachment to emotions and thoughts about them create the afflicted states, the negative emotions. Lust, hatred, ignorance, passions, things that drive people to do selfish, selfish actions. In the inward training, the Nye it says... If you are able to cast off sorrow, happiness, joy, anger, desire, and profit-seeking, your mind will just revert to equanimity. That's all you got to do. And the third field um, of our experience is perception. So perception is all the senses. Well, thought is, you know, usually when we do the practice, our practice of looking at these fields, we talk about six fields, the five fields of the senses, and then thought. And emotion is, the, you know, usually tied in with the bodily sense and thought. But I'm just dividing them into three in this talk. So perception, touch, taste, smell, um, sound, Sight. Pure perception is always selfless. It's only through wrong identification that objects are experienced as positive or negative, or as belonging to or affecting some self. So we're not trying to, just as Huining said, as soon as you stop all thought, you're imprisoned by conditioned phenomena. We also don't want to stop all perception. It's the same, it would be the same thing. So it is possible to enter into states of consciousness through meditation practices where the world disappears. But that's not enlightenment. That's just a, that's just a state. So it's not the perceptions themselves that's the problem. It's how we respond, how we take them. So what's left? If we see that all of these are without self, what is left? The awareness within which all experiences of self and world arise is left. We can say a few things about this awareness. It's ever-present, 
Although clouded through delusion and deep sleep, it seems that there's no awareness. But whenever we look, whenever we, whenever we have any sense of anything, there's awareness. And this awareness can be described as having three main qualities from the Tibetan tradition, from the Mahayana, I should say, Mahayana Buddhism. It's empty. Forms don't dis- disrupt it. Things can come and go freely. There's no restriction to objects. That's why we don't see it, one of the reasons. Because it's so obvious. It's clear. So, movement can happen. And it's aware. It knows. It is knowing. It is knowingness. So knowingness is a property of pure consciousness that has been with us all along. And it's often, like I mentioned before, in Hinduism it's paired with being and bliss. Um, And in the Dzogchen tradition, often it's translated as cognizance, but it's knowingness. Clarity and energy. It's the bliss and the energy. My experience, bliss and energy are the same. It's this, it's the quality of the, the manifestingness, the ability of manifestation. It's not just emptiness. All this arises, and all of that energy is just this bliss of becoming. So these are actually descriptions of experiences, or rather the substratum of all experience. So we're, these are pointers. These are pointers. So first we say, well, it's not this, it's not that. Then we say, but it's like this, it's like this. <clears throat> so these are, these are descriptors, descriptions that refer to the rawness of reality, the suchness. So to know oneself as knowingness, and to know that as nothing and therefore everything, is to know the essence of being and the great bliss. Padma Sambhava says, while practicing, free from unknowing, your own consciousness is clear, pure, and awake. When practicing, you have the experience that your innate, self-existing wakefulness is neither spoiled by a conceptual attitude nor by clinging to bliss, clarity, or non-thought. As that itself is the Buddha mind, you have recognized your own nature. So back to knowingness. It appears that it takes a whole lot of looking around to finally understand that to see what is looking, you need to stop looking. But that ultimately comes down to grace. Something beyond us, beyond the conditioned self. The beyond must recognize itself in and as the individual's mind stream. In the Tibetan tradition, they say the mother and the awareness of mother and son meet and recognize each other. 
It's like, oh, Mom! <laughs> Have you ever seen like one of those reality things where the twin, you know, separate twin, identical twins separated at birth meet? This is the meaning of turning the light inward. And as it says in the Shinshin Ming, the faith mind inscription and old Zen text, I didn't bring a copy, I actually have a translation that I did myself. Many words and many thoughts revolve unresponsively. Sever words and sever thoughts and you are nowhere obstructed. Return to the origin and achieve the meaning. Follow reflections and lose the purpose. You must instantaneously invert the illumination, definitively surpassing the emptiness before you. Meister Eckhart says this about grace. There is another light, the light of grace, compared to which this natural light illumines a mere pinpoint of the earth, nay, rather, a mere pinpoint compared with the whole heavens, which are incredibly more vast than all the earth. God's presence in the soul by grace is instinct with more light than any intellect can give. The light of intellect is but a drop in the ocean of this light, nay, less a thousandfold. Hence to the soul who is in God's grace, all things and whatever her mind can grasp will appear small and mean. So spiritual realization refers to knowledge of the principle of knowing. To know oneself as that which knows not as a subject or object of knowledge, but as pure knowing itself. As I mentioned, this knowing is empty. It is conditioned by nothing, but all arises within it. In essence, it's the container of all possible experience. This knowing is clear. All the horrors and beauties of existence are displayed impartially. So, a bit about that. Horror arises from harmful, negative conditioning, as well as unknown causes. I mean, we can't necessarily name all the causes for things. But in the light of unity, it's seen as painfully sublime. It's difficult to explain this, the heart of awakening, but who suffers? To know deeply that no one suffers is to know the greatest bliss. This knowing is constant. All beings possess it equally, and since it is unconditioned, it cannot be compared to anything. Time and space arise within this awareness. Being and non-being arise within this awareness. Enlightenment and delusion arise within this awareness. So that's a little bit about the path and the fruit. 
Um, but let's, let's, let's talk a little bit about these benefits that I spoke of in the beginning. So one, spiritual real, realization reveals the true nature of reality. One thing that I could say about that is all is equal. Awareness never changes. But it's the foundation for all apparent change. Second benefit, frees one from the miseries of relative existence. As all change in the object seemingly outside of one is illusory, dreamlike display, they're incapable of harming us. As one's sense of a separate self is equally a dream, there is nobody to experience suffering. Upon looking, all suffering mind states vanish into space-like awareness. Therefore, all is a display of the great bliss of union with God, the grace that Meister Eckhart explained. And the third benefit, it transcends death. The Sufis famously say, die before death. As there is neither self nor world, death is simply another illusion, another transition that occurs in the, in the realm of forms. Awareness is constant and cannot be affected by changes. Fear of death has its root in the deep anxiety that accompanies the delusion of separation. And once separation has been transcended, death is seen to be a great opportunity and an interesting transition. Meister Eckhart says, the kingdom of God is for none but the thoroughly dead. (laughs) And he quotes St. Gregory, that man is dead who is dead to the world. Any so-called realization that doesn't have these three aspects falls short of true awakening. Realization ultimately has nothing to do with concepts such as evolution, improvement, or even transformation, one of my favorites. Awakening reveals our identity as fundamentally beyond all of these ideas. For all mental objects are merely phenomenon. Indeed, this identity is so beyond, it is seen as that which gives birth to all worlds, all concepts. An attachment to concepts, no matter how lofty, no matter how sublime, binds us to separate existence. However, once we pass beyond the veil, we must take care to act for the benefit of others. Or we risk contributing to the suffering of others. Padma Sambhava says, we must continue to cultivate illusory compassion for the benefit of illusory beings. (laughs) So, what separates ordinary people from those who have awoken to spiritual realization? Ultimately, there is no difference. But relatively speaking, we can say 
Awakened ones recognize that there is no difference. And deluded people don't. So if you feel that there is a difference between you and Buddha, between you and God, between you and unity with all existence, then you still need spiritual realization. Another sign is states of bliss, states of clarity and transcendence of thought, non-thought. They're accessed without any grasping or effort. They come, they go. Ah, oh, yeah, that's me. Ah, that's me. And the mind remains in a state of satisfaction without any doing or effort on your aura part. Emotions are allowed to pass freely in all their purity and intensity. So until you've reached this level, keep practicing. Once you've reached this level, all activity is practice. So attention is the key. Finally, all traditions agree that this realization is the most valuable, the most important, the most rewarding goal possible for sentient beings. And moreover, that it is right before you, right now. Rumi says, You seek knowledge from books. What a shame. You seek pleasure from sweetmeats. What a shame. You are an ocean of knowledge hidden in a dewdrop. A world concealed in three L's of a body. What are wine, music, or copulation that you should seek delight and profit from them? A sun seeks to borrow from a dust moat. Venus seeks wine from a jug. And the sixth patriarch, Huineng, says, False views make up the world. True views are the world beyond. When true and false are both dismissed, your Buddha nature will be manifest. This is simply the straightforward teaching, also known as the great vehicle. Delusion lasts countless eons. Awareness takes but an instant. That's my talk. Any questions? We cleared it all up? <laughs> Abdullah. Uh, you know, I got two questions. One, you hear like uh, about the Buddha, sometimes they say that the way it's defined is the enlightened one or the one who is awakened under a Bodhi tree. This is my first question. Mm. The second one, in a lot of, uh, a lot of readings that read with regard to awakening, is the idea to see where thought comes from. And I've read actually where some they say they see that the thought coagulate before even it comes up. So the idea is seeing 
where this comes from is somehow as a, uh, an important uh, step. Okay, first question. So, my understanding, I'm not a Sanskrit scholar, but my understanding is that Buddha means awakened one. What is the first question? What was the term Buddha? Did it mean under the Bodhi, he woke up under the Bodhi tree? Or, I don't know if the term Bodhi tree came after Buddha or before Buddha. I'm sure it's possibly lost in the prehistory, or, you know. But I think it means awakened one. At least that's what people, Buddhists, believe, to my knowledge. Second question, watching thought germinate is a wonderful practice. It's actually a very advanced practice because it requires quite a a degree of attention, ability to hold attention and watch the thought field and see thought arise. But it's not identical with awakening. So what awakening is, is to see that the space within which thought arises, the thought and all objects that you ever experience are all equally arising from what you are. So it has to do with the principle of identity. And then, when you recognize your identity as being inherently both beyond and within all phenomena, you you can no longer be conditioned by phenomena. The thought can no longer actually deceive you into thinking that you know, there, there's nothing there to be conditioned anymore with, with awakened awareness. So the thought can arise, or maybe you don't notice the thought arise. It doesn't matter, because you know, you know what it is. Does that make sense? Do you need to be able to observe this process happening in order to be awakened? The... the method he was speaking about. Um, <clears throat> probably if there's a true awakening, you will, your attention will become more subtle. But I don't, you don't have to do that type of method necessarily. People have woken up doing all sorts of different kinds of practices. And, but if you have an authentic awakening, most likely you, you know, occasionally will notice thoughts bubbling. You know. Um, it is really a good idea, though, to try to train attention. I mean, it's you know that's what most mystics did practices. I mean, you know, ninety nine point nine percent of them probably did. You know, these things, these practices that were handed down in order to start to be able to see the conditioning and start to disengage identity from it, and and that uh, that includes these more subtle types of conditioning with thoughts. So. It's a good idea, I think. Hiromi? Can you explain again about the nose thoughts are actually always confused? Should I read the quote again? Yeah, Neng? No, I yeah. yeah, it is a little confusing. So you have to remember, these, these um, traditions are in different languages. And so, you know, in Chinese, I don't know the word for thought, but no is like mu. So he's saying what you need is, he's using this kind of hyphenated term, you know, no thought, mu thought, whatever thought is. And so that's a term for what I'm trying to describe here where thoughts are allowed, but they're not conditioning us. We're not identifying with them. But let me read what he says. 
because I like this quote. The teaching of no thought means to see, I'm going to translate this a little bit, all phenomena without being attached to any phenomena, to reach everywhere without being attached anywhere, to keep your nature pure, so that when the six thieves pass through the six gates, they neither avoid nor are corrupted by the six realms of sensation, by you know the five senses and thought, but come and go freely. This is the samadhi of prajna, of wisdom. Freedom and liberation constitute the practice of no thought. But if you don't think any thoughts at all, the moment you make your thought stop, you're imprisoned by phenomena. Okay, that is the part that I'm a little confused about. Yeah. Because it says, try not to have thoughts and be free with all your He doesn't say don't have thoughts, though. He says to see all phenomena, that includes thoughts, without being attached to any phenomena, to reach everywhere, to be, to be able to perceive, perceive everything without being attached anywhere. You know, our problem is, it's like, okay, yeah, so I'm impartial to, you know, I don't know, Mexico. Mexico, I don't know, it's okay, it's nice, I don't mind. But Eugene, that's where I live, I like Eugene, or... I hate it here. The weather's so crummy. I can't wait till I can go to Mexico. You know, we, we're imprisoned by our attachments to what we're perceiving. So what he's saying is we want to allow our perception to fill everything, but to be equal, to not be grasping here and pushing away there. So when he said that no thoughts, no when... When you are thought, you are prisoner of the thoughts that part, can you rephrase it? Yeah, okay. So what he's saying is that if you practice something, uh, a method where you get the thoughts to stop, and this, is, this can happen in um, meditation, and sometimes it happens spontaneously, but if you become attached to that state and you try to hold that state of no thought, then you're imprisoned by phenomena. <coughs> Because it's it's the same as um, well, it's a resistance to thought. So it's just like uh, you know, here's an object of experience that I don't like, so I'm going to ignore it completely. It's sort of like when you're having a fight, and then one person decides to give the silent treatment, <laughs> right? I'm not pointing any fingers here. <laughs> But I'm just saying, this is something people do, right? You know, it's like, okay, I can't deal with this. I'm going to pretend that nothing's happening. But in order to pretend that nothing's happening, I have to completely shut that other person out. Completely. Because if I even look at them, I'll feel how upset I am, right? So that's sort of what he's saying. It's like, it doesn't last very long, you know? It doesn't, it's not an ultimate solution. It's giving reality to the thoughts. It's giving, yeah. It's giving reality to the thoughts, exactly. Absolutely. And then move forward in a different yeah, way. Absolutely. So to me, that's kind of what 
they're talking about is you're, you're doing one thing, you stop, you realize you have a choice. You can open up your whole perception and not go into any preconceived way, but realize that there's, there's different ways of Absolutely, and primarily what we want when, when we want to employ that insight is when our thoughts are creating suffering. Correct. So if we're having we're going down a train of thought and we're starting to feel bad, that's when hopefully you've been meditating and you can go, that's not useful. How can I, you know, why take that to be real? How you know, and then. And so ultimately, what we're looking for is to be able to have that, um, that ability to... Let's read that other quote. If you're able to cast off sorrow, happiness, joy, anger, desire, and profit-seeking, your mind will just revert to equanimity. So, That's kind of like the seven um, deadly sins or something. Yeah. It, well, the, the interesting thing about this book is that this book actually predates the Tao Te Ching. This is a really old text. So, so that also means it predates Buddha, Buddhism's introduction to China, which happened in the, around the first century. And, it, you know, and the, a lot of the Tao Te Ching was like 400 years before that. This is like 500 years before the Common Era. And so it's old. And so, yeah, they have their own way of talking about it. But it's the same teaching. It's the same. It's the same, you know, as what Meister Eckhart said. He says... He says, what prevents union with God? He says, the three hindrances of the soul, to being, being too much divided, not, not simple, not pure in relations with creatures. What he means by that? He means by afflicted, you know, these emotions, these uh, afflicted relationships and attachment to temporal things. Again, so that's lust or desire or prophecy-seeking. We've got time for one or two more questions if there are any, or we can just break for tea. Mark? A question about suffering. I, I can understand how, from one perspective, there is no suffering because there's no one to suffer. And so it's all recognized as whatever word you want to put on it. But from the perspective of the person who's suffering, it is suffering. And so, I guess, it, and this is like sort of like my, my one question at this point, still hanging here, waiting for some kind of resolution, is if the natural outflow is compassion and to alleviate the suffering of others, somehow, I mean, and you sort of, you had a line that was sort of, you know, kind of a funny line that, you know, you have to, Cultivate illusory compassion right, to benefit the illusory beings. Right. So that might cover it, but it seems like that there's a lot of um, emphasis put on, you know, alleviating the suffering of others, while at the same time, but it's not real suffering. But not only does it feel pretty real, I mean, <laughs> to the person who's suffering, but it also looks pretty. Uh, it looks like suffering from the outside, especially if it's serious suffering. Um, I know. I, I know even awakened people, your sort of your heart goes out. It's like, oh, that, that's that's awful. There's something awful about that. So I guess my, my question is sort of like how that sort of works out. That something that could be recognized, oh, that's so awful, and at the same time, it's like, but it's not really. 
I'm going to quote Joel. This is from like the last Lone Pine Retreat. Maybe he'll make an homage to it this time. But he said, suffering is bad. So, probably the, one of the only dualistic statements I've made him, heard him make. But, it's in the sense that, yes, you're right. The heart goes out to suffering. But the, the, the thing is, what is suffering? And that's what we're trying to point out here. The suffering is not arising because of the conditions. The suffering is arising because of the wrong identification, because of delusion. Ultimately, that's the cause. The conditions for suffering, yes, I mean, it's much more likely that there's going to be a lot of suffering people if there's some horrible natural disaster or whatever. Or if the person has a disease. You know, these are conditions that give rise to providing fertile soil for the causes of suffering to then trigger the suffering experience. But the suffering itself is not in the conditions. And, you know, look at your own experience, you know, and see if you can take an experience, let's say, maybe, you know, you're in an argument with your wife, and it used to be that you were, it's just horrible suffering, you know, oh my God, you know, it's like, I love this person so much, but we can't even talk, you know, it's just horrible. And then, you know, you, and then, I'm sure, maybe it's because this has never happened. She thinks it's kind of, so, so, and then if you can really apply mindfulness and totally step out of the situation and see just the pureness behind and giving rise to all this and the love and the, you know, just, so if you can take it in your own experience, your own experience in simpler ways, you know, and again, this is something I heard Joel say, you know, he, and I don't know for sure, you know, I mean, I haven't been to Auschwitz during the, you know, I mean, I haven't had those kinds of, I mean, he at least was in war, um, you know, but I haven't been through these horrendous experiences, so I can't say for certain in that way, um, in this sort of relativistic speaking way, that that's what I would experience, but... Um, I have the faith that that's what I experience. So that's actually a more certain, some ultimate certainty. But you have to find it out for yourself. And, and again, it's, this is one of those questions where it's like, what is spiritual realization? Well, you can talk about it all you want, but until you actually really get it, you, 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 there will still be questions. There will be still doubt. And that's actually good that you're aware of your doubt because the doubt is showing you where is the resistance. So if you follow that doubt, keep, I mean, pay attention to that doubt. Pay attention to the doubt and to the, and to the bliss states, both. You want really to pay attention to both. Yeah. And then you'll find, find out some stuff for yourself, I'm sure. This is off the track a little bit, but in my mind, if you're praying or meditating, usually it's like going out into the world and it's not necessarily for yourself. It seems kind of selfish. But I think really one should always be asking for a blessing for yourself or saying, let me be open to the whole situation where you're not creating any parameters, but if any insights or whatever come, you'll be open to them. You know, for looking at suffering it's in the dark side. We don't, we don't see that going. Mm-hmm. It's good advice. Ed. I continue to have confusion between suffering 
as we were talking about, and uh, experiences that are unpleasant. Uh, it could be pain, it could be grief, uh, and had difficulty keeping them separate. Mm-hmm. They are separate, I believe. Can you expound? Sure. That a bit? So the experience of pain or pleasure is. Um, well, it is constituted of thought, feeling, or thought, emotion, and perception. But in its rawness, it's purely sensation, or sensation with thought. You know, even a strong emotional experience can be experienced just as sensation. Then we overlay it due to clinging, due to grasping, pushing away. And that cr- gives us some kind of meaning. Which I mean we- what do I mean? We interpret it. Yeah, we, we give it meaning. We take it to be something, uh, you know, an experience that's affecting itself. And then, you know, maybe we have fear and worry about what might happen. You know, oh my gosh, this hurts. What if I lose my hand? You know, we create this whole world and this whole, all these consequences, possible consequences and stuff. But the raw, just naked experience itself is purely sensation with possible thought arising. And we can see that with the power of the samadhi of prajna. So I'm not saying that you know you you need this power, you need this spiritual realization, you need to get it. And then you can experience anything nakedly. So that's what we're saying. And and I, everybody's had some experience of that. You know, uh, maybe you, know, you hit your thumb and you know it hurts so bad that it's almost blissful. Gosh, that really feels tense. My gosh, or something like that. You know, I. I, I anyway, if you do enough meditation, you will start to have those types of experiences where maybe you're sitting and your knee hurts, but you just watch the knee pain. You just watch it, and you just see that's just energy, it's just this sensation. And it's actually there's an interpretation that comes in that says you better move, or you might not keep the foot. But you know, or whatever. But that's just an interpretation. So these are. Some of these interpretations are kind of hardwired, and they're important so that we, you know, don't just bump into the world and end up shortening our lifespan or whatever. But they are interpretations. Does that make sense? Does that answer your question a little bit? But you're not denying the feelings. No, absolutely not. Yeah, and and we still want to make a skillful means, you know, a skillful uh, response. You know, based on the situation and so forth. You know, take your hand off the stove. You know what I mean? Okay. It's about twelve thirty, so I think that's a good time. Wait for Hiromi. Okay. Any? No final questions? Okay. So we meet again. Peace to you all. <laughs>